We started this last Sunday morning. The faith that saves must overcome the whole world. This is the text we were working on. 1 John 5, 1 to 12. Get a Bible at home. Get a Bible. Study along with us, all right? 1 John 5, 1 to 12. I'll read. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. That's what we were talking about in the communion service. Loving God and loving everyone who is born of God. Same thing. Two. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Four. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. I want to talk about that sentence. Five. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So faith, the victory that overcomes the world is faith. What does faith believe? Well, it's faith that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's tied to overcoming the world. Six. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and the blood. Now you get these strange verses. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. What is that all about? Nine. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. So again, it's all tied to Jesus. 10. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So again, it's all about Jesus. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. This life is in his son, he says it again. Whoever has the son, there it is again, has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So we started unfolding this text last Sunday. And the first point was, it's really the only point we talked about last week. When, when, when the truth about Jesus and God's grace reaches my heart, it makes a change. It's not like the old covenant on a hard, stony heart the new covenant that we celebrated in communion, it's on a soft heart where the spirit works so that the commandments of God aren't kept as a burden. They aren't just a list of duties. That was the problem with even the Ten Commandments. You've you've got these commandments and the children of Israel never kept them. So many of them falling into idolatry and adultery, so many things. And so the prophet talks about a day when there'd be a new covenant and it would be internal. And there would be the commands, but they'd be kept out of love. They wouldn't be a burden. They wouldn't be a chore. I wouldn't keep them perfectly. But even when I broke them, the sin is what breaks my heart. Sinning against God. I long to keep God's ways. We got that in 1 John 5, 2 and 3. This is where we spent last Sunday morning. By this we know that we love the children of God 
and when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and, this is the important point, his commandments are not burdensome. We love God. I have two more points that I want to cover today. So if that was point number one, the change grace makes in my heart is I long to keep the commandments. They're not a burden. I want to please God. So if that's point number one, we'll start today with point number two. Notice John's teaching on the downward pull of the world. It's in verses four and five. For everyone who has been born of God, this word is important, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes? See the third time? Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that that Jesus is the Son of God? As if to rub this truth into our ears, John repeats a phrase three times, overcomes the world. He says it three times in two verses. When I talk about overcoming something, immediately the idea that bounces to the surface is, well, there's got to be opposition. There's something to overcome, right? When John says there's, there's, there's this victory that overcomes the world, our faith overcomes the world, he who believes in the Son overcomes the world, he means that there is going to be constant pushback. In other words, this faith that overcomes the world, it still has to be exercised. So the commandments aren't a burden, but that doesn't mean they're effortless. I long to keep them. I apply myself to keeping them out of love for God. They aren't a burden, but they take effort. It's like exercising any muscle. You know what that's like. You've been all winter in the house and then spring comes and you forget that you're 66 years old and you get the shovel and you start working the gardens and it's a wonderful sunny day and you feel great about it and you're making great progress and you're chopping away and you're ripping out plants and you do all that. You go to bed, you get up the next morning and you go, what in the world happened to me? You ache. Like exercising any muscle, faith rarely feels good when it's stretched. Faith is believing there is more joy and blessing to be found in God's grace and God's ways, both now in this world and in the future, than could ever be found in the ways of this world. That's what faith is. Faith is banking on God's will, always being the best path to my ultimate joy. And here's the thing. This whole world doesn't want you believing that. This whole world under the prince of this world is orchestrated to make you feel that your own ideas, your own instincts, your plans, your ambitions will be better for you than doing what God says when you don't feel like it. Can you think of one other occasion in the scriptures where someone made a big mistake along those lines? Really? Did God say you can't eat the fruit of that tree? You know what? He's holding out on you. You 
you will be better off. You will be better off catering to your own desires right now than listening to your creator. That is always the battle of faith. That's what faith is. Banking on God's way, investing my life in God's way, even when it's countercultural and counter to my own instincts. That's the one fact the devil doesn't want you to believe. He labors to make God's will look second best or worse. There are millions, millions of lies asserting themselves against my renewed mind in this world. So while never a burden, faith isn't always easy. There are forces that war against glad, loving obedience to God's word. Love for God doesn't just float into our hearts like a bright pink glow. Faith is always treasuring Christ more than, 1 John 2, 6, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride and possession. So the world is at work. The flesh is at work. Your own desires are at work. The prince of this world is at work full time. And all of those forces work exactly the same way. They always strike at my loving confidence in God's promise and God's word. They always labor to make the things of God, unlike the text we read, they want to make the ways of God a burden, a challenge, an inconvenience, an irritation, Something that's going to make you look out to lunch in the eyes of the surrounding culture. Your friends, your peers, your fellow students, your fellow workers. This has always been the case. It's the story of the fall. It's the single most important part of the creation account. It has more relevance than almost anything else in Genesis 1 and 2. I mean, think about it. Only one command to be obeyed. How burdensome can that possibly be? How hard can it be to enjoy all of God's provision, all of God's goodness, vivid personal communion with him, the pleasures of his creation without any of the stain or pain of sin and the fall? All Adam and Eve had to do was refrain from eating from one tree. One command is all they were given. One command. Is that too difficult to keep one command? One restriction. You can teach your kids. You can teach your dog to obey one command. Sit. All Adam and Eve were given just one command. In all of God's beautiful, lush, unspoiled creation, one command, and they can't do it. Now, why? I mean, why did Adam and Eve blow it so badly? Well, here's what happened. There came the downward pull, the voice of the enemy. There came a voice to make them just resent 
the ways of God. And that very same voice, that downward pull, has now soaked into the world all around you, all around me. It's the birthmark of sin in this world. It's anything that makes you less trusting that God's will and way is the best for your life. Anything that argues against that is of the devil. Now you start, we're in a position to see this is, but there's a victory. This is the victory that overcomes the world. It's your faith. But it's not filling out a doctrine card in a church. Your faith, God's ways are always best. See, that's how you overcome the world. God's promises are always true. God's will is the most liberating, even when my natural instincts think it's going to be most confining. It's always the best. I always give God the benefit of the doubt. Always. This is the victory that overcomes the world, by the way. That kind of faith. That kind of faith. It defangs the lies of Satan and our culture. This is the test for any passion, any recreation, any habit, any impression, any addiction, any amusement, any conversation, any friendship. How do I feel about my quest for God when I'm done with these things or when I'm involved in these things? Do I long for his presence more, his people more, his word more, or are these things teaching me to find my delight in other things. Bingo. Am am I starting to enjoy other things more? Any other thing? Even a good thing. Doesn't have to be something perverse. Do I find God's laws increasingly restrictive? Do my personal interests make the ways of God seem dull? Can I sit through a two-hour movie, but not a 90-minute church service? And why is that? It's important to note what John means by the world in verses 4 and 5. It's it's defined best when you look at what he said in verse 3 and then 4 and 5. So let's do that in order. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Now quick, look at 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, when you take those verses together, three and then four and five, and you piece them together, you learn something really important about the world and what John means when he talks about the world, overcoming the world, not loving the world. The world, remember verse three, the world in four and five is anything that makes the commandments of God in verse 3 feel like a burden. The world is anything. It's anything that makes the ways of God seem unappealing. The world is anything that shifts my delight 
earthward or selfward rather than joyfully glorifying and following Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me and promises life abundant. And there's a reason this is, I think, pretty important because, because there's an understanding of worldliness. I grew up with it many times. An understanding of worldliness, though never explicitly stated, but it's the idea that Christians should avoid worldliness, which is true enough, but the impression is given that by the world, we simply mean a list of things God says we're not allowed to do. And that's where these verses ought to speak to us. John says God calls his children away from the world, sure enough, But for this reason, there isn't enough joy in it. It's too empty, not too rich. It's like crummy jelly beans before a rich steak dinner. The the world can dull your appetite for God. It can make the ways of God seem burdensome. That's the danger. The forces of this world, they work to make the things of God irksome, tiresome, restrictive, an interruption, an interruption to the better things you can find living life your own way. Did God really say that if you eat the fruit, you'll die? It's not so. He's holding out on you. That's just an unreasonable demand he's placing on you. That's always the way the devil the surrounding culture, that's the way they work. And, and John says you constantly have to overcome that. That's what faith does. It trusts God. It overcomes the lies of this world. I said there were two points. Here's the third. Point one was last week. The pathway to overcoming this world, it's outlined. I want to look at Verses 6 through 12 now of our text. 1 John 5, 6 through 12. This is he who came by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater See, so men, women, people, the culture will tell you where joy is found. Security is going to be found. Happiness is going to be found. You have the testimony of men. The testimony of God is greater. The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Remember I said the difference between the Old Covenant and the New? Not a heart of stone where the commandments are read but bounce off by and large, and a, and a soft heart where things, the Spirit works in the heart to, so that God's commands aren't a burden. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
Perhaps your honest reaction to those verses is like mine used to be. What in the world can all those confusing words possibly have to do with overcoming the world? All that talk about witnesses and water and blood and doctrinal pronouncements about who Jesus is and what he did. I mean, there ought to be something practical in here on spiritual warfare or something if you're going to be overcoming the world. But let's just follow John for a minute. He's, he's taking all of us with these sort of confusing words and he's bringing us back to some basic, back to the roots that nourish everything else. And I want to wrap this up with two thoughts, A and B, under this third point. So A, you have to be certain you understand the wonderful work Jesus did in dying for you on the cross if you want to overcome the world. That's where all those kind of confusing words about water and blood, verses 6, 7, and 8. I still think, scholars debate it, I still think the best explanation of those difficult verses is water refers to Jesus' baptism and blood refers to his atoning death. Here's why I think that. In his baptism... Jesus identifies with sinners like I. John doesn't want to baptize him, remember? No, 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 Jesus. You baptize me, I'm not baptizing you. This is a baptism of repentance. You've got nothing to repent of. Well, what's he doing then? John recognizes Jesus is sinless. He knows who he is, doesn't want to baptize him, and Jesus insists. Jesus made his point. His life, his coming death, would be fully to pay for my sin and my guilt. And so, even though he has no sin to be repenting of, he identifies, he goes down into that water. Baptism of repentance. Can you believe it? Jesus goes down into that water and comes up. Why? Well, because I've got a lot to repent of. And Jesus is representing me. And he's representing you. And so John says, you need, you need to have a firm understanding of how deeply he loves us. Here's how all this teaching on Jesus' death and baptism, how it relates to having a faith that overcomes the downward dulling pull of this world. I think if John were here, he would tap each of us on the shoulder and say, if you don't regularly and deeply ponder and value and feed upon Jesus' work as Savior, you, you won't have the kind of fuel you need to muster up a love for God. You can't just admire him. You, you have to sense the richness of his grace toward you. It's like Paul. I beseech you, therefore, by the, what's the next phrase? Mercies of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What's the fuel in a corrupt world? What's the fuel that would make a person present his body a living sacrifice to God? Well, the person has to first, oh, look at the mercy. I beseech you by the mercy. Look what he's done for me. See, that's what fuels love for God. And it's the love for God that makes his commands not a burden. And it's the Faith in that great love that Jesus has for me 
that kind of faith that if he's done that, I trust his promises, and that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That's what this is all about, overcoming the downward pull of the world. God's grace fuels holiness. We love him because he first loved us. Without his grace and mercy, that's why it talks about water being the way he was baptized. He had no sins that he needed to repent of, but he identified fully with my sin, my need, my despair. He showed that kind of love. That's that's where victory over temptation comes from. I said I had two thoughts. That's A, this is B. When John talks about overcoming three times, overcoming the world, this is what I'm thinking. Point B, look out for some of the enemies of true overcoming faith in Jesus Christ. They're not all the same. Sometimes sorrow or loss can make you doubt God's love or blame him for what's gone wrong. That'll, that'll destroy victory over the world. Far more often, look out for prosperity. Number one sin in the North American church is materialism. Prosperity can jade your spiritual taste because, well, you just don't feel quite the same sense of need for Jesus when everything's going great. Sometimes false teaching. I mentioned it earlier specifically and named it because it needs to be named when the atonement is being messed with. False teaching, even in some subtle form in the evangelical church, it can shift attention away from God's richness in mercy toward us on the cross. We're almost done. But I've just been noticing all over again. You've probably noticed it a long time ago. When you're reading through your New Testament, especially from post book of Acts, as you work toward the back of the Bible. Paul's um, deep, endless fascination with Jesus Christ. In all of his letters, not quite all of them, but 95% of his letters. He can't even start. He can't even start writing to the church at Ephesus or Galatians or Corinth or Philippi. He can't even start writing without saying, something great about Jesus Christ and what his grace and mercy has done in his life. He just can't start without that. And the strange thing is, here's the link. Remember I said understanding his mercy is the fuel for overcoming the world? In most of those letters, he's going to write to these churches, correcting them of their faults. Almost all of them. Almost every epistle in the New Testament is written to correct false teaching or false practice. And it's like before Paul gets into, you got, you got to stop doing this. You got to stop doing this. You need to do this right. Don't listen to these people. Before he gets into all of that, what is, what is the fuel that's going to enable those people to do those things? And he says, according to the riches of his mercy. And he, he talks about Jesus so much. And you start to see why Jude, um, I think, verse 21. Don't look it up now. You start to see the importance of that phrase. If you want to overcome the world, keep yourselves in the love of God. Remember that phrase? 
keep yourselves in the love of God. It's more than just saying, love God. It's saying, there's only one place where your life can be fruitful. There's only one place where you can have faith that overcomes the lies and the counterpull of this world. There's only one thing that'll do it. You keep yourself in the love of God. You keep thinking of his mercy. All that he's done for you. And what it proves is you can trust his promises for everything else about your life. And that is the victory that overcomes the world. I'd like you to say this loud enough so the people at home can hear it. And everyone said, thank you. Thank you, thank you. What a beautiful text. The sermon may not be great, but the text is absolutely stupendous. We don't ever want our hearts to cool in their grasp and in their relishing of the depth, the length to which you went in your redeeming love for all of our hearts and lives. Keep us, keep us close to the flame. Keep our hearts warm. Make everything else seem distant and trite compared to eternal life and the promise of God toward our behalf. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.